Um, if you follow the, the presidents over the year, inevitably, um, over the decades, uh, as it were, inevitably, every president has this moment where they go, what am I going to do in front of royalty? So England has a queen, Saudi Arabia has a king, Japan has a king, I think there's a couple other nations in there. But there's, there's something about, it feels like there's something different between royalty and president, and and it's a real scandal um, if a president bows to royalty. So Obama ran into that because, I mean, he just kind of walked into this buzzsaw and everybody's like, oh, what are you doing? And then Trump allegedly possibly bowed as well. And, uh, and there's, they raised a big, st- they being the press, raised a big stink about it. Why? Because they're equals. So one's monarchy and, and one is democracy. One gets elected, one goes by birth, but in reality, when you're talking about a sovereign ruler, well, the president's sovereign, elected president, is not sovereign, but they're equals. So a president does not bow to a queen or to a king. The prime minister of Canada has to bow to the queen, though. So they still have a, some kind of a relationship going on between the two countries, allegedly. That's uh, what I hear in terms of history. All you high schoolers who are taking world history, you can back me up on that. Um, so this whole idea of bowing is a, sh- is a sign of reverence, but it's bigger than that. When it comes to power, sovereign power, it's actually subjugation. Now, subjugation feels a little bit more like well, that, that means I'm under you. That, that's a bad form, but it's not a bad form. The word subjugation means there is a ruler and there is a subject, and the subject goes, you're the ruler, and the ruler goes, I know, and you're my subject. And there's this moment in chapter 1 of Ezekiel where Ezekiel sees this vision of the likeness of the presence of the Lord, right? It's an incredible p- chapter. And Ezekiel's response is this fall on his face before the Lord. Now, it doesn't say any words other than this is what he did. And so we talked about last week that that word's just, that action is filled with all kinds of meaning. And so I don't want to just tie it to one word, but one of the words, one of the meanings of fall on your face before the Lord is subjugation. It means he is the Lord and I am the subject. I am the subject, he is the Lord. It doesn't require some kind of doctorate in Bible to understand subjection, right? Subjugation, being under. And so last week, we understood what God we started to understand and explore what God was saying to Ezekiel as he's sending him out. This is your call. This week, we're going to look at what God says to Israel, what his message to Israel as a nation is in total, his subjects. He says this in chapter 2 of Ezekiel. I'm going to be doing a lot of reading today, and I remember when I was in my teens and just healthy as all get out, and I said, I'll never wear these ever in public, and you just wait. It happens. Talk on it. Verse 2. Uh, or, or verse 3, he said, Son of man, God's talking to Ezekiel. Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to uh, nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. 
They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Whenever they hear or refuse to hear for their rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their looks, nor be dismayed at their, or their words, nor be afraid at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Uh, the word rebellion occurs 24 times in Ezekiel. Eight of them. Eight of them right here. A third of the time is in the second shortest chapter in Ezekiel. God's saying something. At the outset, the Lord is saying of the subjects, they're rebelling. They're rebellious. Over and over, eight times, rebelling, rebelling, rebelling. And, and it's this, this idea of rebellion is they, they resist to be controlled by God's law. They refuse to give allegiance to his rule. They defy the truth that he's their authority. They challenge his authority at all turns. They rebel against God at every turn and ultimately completely shred the covenants that they've made, that they voluntarily made with God. And that's why the title is R, rated R for rebel. It wasn't God who broke the covenants. It was Israel. And God is coming to say, you, you don't understand something. You're my subjects. Like, I am your Lord. And that's one of the reasons why 70 times in the book of Ezekiel, 70 times God says, this is my purpose. You are going to know the name of the Lord. You're going to know your ruler. You're going to know your sovereign Lord. And, and what happens often is we, they thought they could just get away with it, right? After centuries, really, just get away with it. Like this weak-willed sovereign Lord is not going to do. What is he going to do? Like, and so as we move through Ezekiel, God starts to lay out his case against Israel. Chapter 5, he talks about how it was a rebellion against his rules. I, mean, I think there's 5 verse 6. He says it so clearly. He says, She has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than on the countries around her. For they've rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. In chapter 6, he comes and he starts to speak against the idolatry, right? Going after idols. Chapter 8, it got so bad in chapter 8, they actually brought idols into the temple, into the courtyard and into the temple, and they're worshiping there. They're worshiping what was dedicated to God and where God's presence was. They were worshiping idols. And the, the cumulative consequence of it, he talks about the, the wrath is coming. It's, you, it's unavoidable at this point, but then in chapter 10, the, the unthinkable happens. You remember that? It's that unbelievable chapter of one where you talk about the likeness of the presence of God. Amazing. Chapter 10, you see this, this in, it's just an intense description, right? All the details of the presence of God, and then guess what? He leaves. He leaves the temple. He leaves Israel. He's gone. 
which is the unthinkable, like, now you know it's bad. God has left Israel. You know, I think one of the things is we follow God and over the years um, is we, we can think that it's really not that bad. Like, rebelling against God, choosing to go our own way, choosing against God, eh, it's not that bad, right? It's not that serious. I'm not like a, re- a rebel. I'm not like really rebellious. It's, I just don't want to do that. D.A. Carson, he's a famous scholar, wrote of us as Christians, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. I mean, come on. We don't have idols. Right? I mean, none of us have idols. None of us rebel. We don't shade the truth as bad as we used to. You know, up to this point, you may be thinking, okay, so what's the rated R piece? You send out that paragraph, the need to know. It's like, ah, we're getting the kids out of here. What's going to go on here? And... um, We're going to read what God thinks about our rebellion. And the predominant amount of this passage is going to be God talking to us, like really out of his word. I'm just going to let his voice do the speaking. And uh, it's important to understand that this is God's people he's talking to, people who've signed up, people who understand he is the Lord, and they're his subjects. And that's gonna be, it's going to be unique in that sense because I'm going to read two chapters and spend a lot of time just reading Scripture and letting God speak for himself. One of the things that's important to understand as we look at these two chapters is God often would talk about his relationship to Israel being a husband to a wife. And this that intimate relationship of a covenantal vow, I will, I will remain loyal, stay true, you know, as long as I have breath, right? It's, it's that vow. You, you go into the New Testament and you see Jesus, uh, Paul really talks about this, but this idea that the church is the bride of Christ, Christ is the bridegroom, or he's the groom, the bride, and there is this amazing metaphor. In fact, Paul says, look, you want to understand marriage, understand the relationship between Christ and the church, the bridegroom and the bride. So what happens when we start to rebel, God describes it, 
as unfaithfulness, a marriage relationship. a husband and wife relationship. And God talks about and describes himself as being this jealous God. In fact, in Exodus 20, I mean, it's one of the biggies, right? We talk about the Ten Commandments. We don't talk about this one too much, but he says, don't make for yourself any graven image or any likeness of the image of man, birds, animals, or reptiles, right? Like, you will not bow down and worship any idol, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That jealousy is, is a rich word, but it comes out, part of that word comes out of this idea of how God views us and him. And this deep commitment that we've made, that we see made in marriage, and he says that's what it's like, you and, and I, you and me. He's jealous. In fact, there's chapter 8, when they bring these idols into the temple, eight chap, chapter 8, verse 4, or I think it's verse 4, but it's in chapter 8, he, he says, you know, the image of jealousy that provokes to jealousy. And I remember reading that going, what? The image of jealousy that provokes to jealousy? What in the world does that mean? And I tried to figure it out. Um, and, and ultimately, it is the image of jealousy, meaning that's a reference to any idol. It's an image of jealousy. And guess what it does? It provokes God to be jealous. That's my worship. That, that's, that's my bride. What are, you, what are you doing giving your worship? What are you doing giving your love? But we don't have idols. Do we? I don't think uh, we, we often talk about how jealous God is of us and our worship and our love and our affection. So um, I'm going to read the word and let God speak for himself here. Let me just pray as we begin. Lord, would you release your word in all its power? So no deception happens now, God. No self-deception, no lies, no confusion. That all just stops. Any, anything from the enemy that would cloud our thinking and our ability to hear from you stops. And we release your word. In the name of Christ, we release this word. So Ezekiel chapter 16. So the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out upon an open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. When I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you, in your blood live. I said... To you in your blood live. 
I made you flourish like a plant of the field. You grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown and yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of, for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like is never nor shall ever be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them and also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey and you set before them a pleasing aroma and so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters and whom you had borne to me and these you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as offerings by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. And at the head of every street, you built, you built your lofty place and made your beauty a, an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby with multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted, purport, allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you weren't satisfied. Yeah, you played the whore with them and still you weren't satisfied. You multiplied your whorings also with the trading land of Chaldea. And even with this, you weren't satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you, you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, a prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, 
Behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords and they shall burn your houses and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy, oh, sorry. Yes, so I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from me, from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. He goes on to describe several other, he says, sisters and daughters of nations around them. And famously, one of them is Sodom and Gomorrah. And he makes this comparison of Sodom. Verse 46, your elder sister, Samaria, who lived with the daughters to the north of you. Your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations with, very, with a very little time, within a very little time, were more, you were more corrupt than they at all their ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did that abomination before me. So I removed him when I saw it. And Samaria has not committed half your sins. You've committed more abominations than they have made your sisters. You've made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you've committed. Flip over to Ezekiel chapter 23. This is the story of, of Israel. Uh, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, we talked about Israel had a civil war, uh, three kings in. King Saul, King David, and then Solomon. And when Solomon died, there was a civil war that broke out, actually even while he was alive. Uh, northern kingdom, but it actually ultimately split after his death. The northern kingdom was 10 tribes called Israel. The southern kingdom was two tribes called Judah. So he tells the story of the northern and southern kingdom as daughters. The northern kingdom, the capital city was Samaria, as a center, political, religious center. And you, so you'll see Samaria here. That's Ohala. And then the southern kingdom with Judah or Jerusalem as the capital city is Ohalabah. He says this, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ohala was the name of the elder and Ohalabah the name of her sister. They became mine. They bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ohala is Samaria and Ohalabah is Jerusalem. Ohala played the whore while she was mine. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. 
And one of the things that really ticked God off was Israel was always looking for power and stability and prominence, and they thought they could find it in other nations. And so you're going to see him talk about Assyria, Babylon, Egypt over and over again because they wanted security, they wanted their borders stable, they want the same things that we still want and fight over today. And he said, I'm, I'm your protection. I'm the one that keeps your borders. I'm the one that keeps your army. He prevented them. He prohibited them from actually getting horses. He said, I want you to have horses. You're going to start relying on horses. You don't need horses. You have me. I mean, every step of the way, whenever they thought of protection and whenever they thought like, oh, we need to, to guard ourselves and, and or we need help and we need power, they never went to the Lord. But we never do that. That's just Israel, right? We never want protection. We never try to find it outside of God. That's just Israel. So she bestows her whoring on them in verse 7. The choicest men of Assyria, all of them, she defiled herself with the, all the idols of everyone whom she lusted. That's another story. They would bring in all the religions of these various countries. She did not give up her whoring, but, but we never do that. Um, she did not give up her whoring that she'd begun in Egypt for her. In her youth, men had laid with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore, I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness. They seized her sons and her daughters. And as for her, they killed her with a sword and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. So that's the, the death of the northern kingdom. Verse 11, now he shifts to the southern kingdom. Ohalabah saw this, and she became more corrupt. She saw this, but she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. She lusted after the Assyrian governors and commanders, warriors clothed in armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men, and I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way. But she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waist, flowing turbans on their head. All of them had the appearance of officers, the likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. And when she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her in the bed of love and they defiled her with their whoring lust. And after she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. She carried on, when she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I had turned in disgust from her sister. Yet she increased in whoring. Remembering the days of her youth, she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted us for her lovers there. Members like the, those of donkeys whose issue was like that of horses. Thus you long for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. Therefore... Ohalabah, says the Lord, behold, I stir up against you and your lovers. From whom you turned in disgust, I will bring them against you from every side. He goes on to describe judgment that's going to come to them. Judgment all the way up through verse 27. More judgment through verse 35. And he says, therefore, because you've forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourselves must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. Goes on to describe her who was worn out by adultery. 
they will continue to use her for a whore, even her. For they have gone into her as men go into a prostitute. Thus, when they went into Ahala and Ahalabad, lewd women, but righteous men will pass judgment on them with the sentence of adulteresses and with the sentence of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses. And he pronounces judgment. Not, I will judge if you don't. It's, it's too late. Cheating on God. The word whore occurs 60 times in the Bible. 34 of them are in Ezekiel. 31 out of the 34 are in chapter 16 and chapter 23. It's just you can't get around it. It is so arresting to read these two chapters. It's such graphic language. It, it makes us tent, tense up, right? Uh, this is something you, we don't even use this word. Like, who says that word? Like, we don't even say that word anymore. Like, it's in our culture. This is, you could almost, somebody could argue this is hate speech, right? Definitely politically incorrect. I mean, we don't even call prostitutes prostitutes anymore in our country. We call them sex workers. Why? Because it's so offensive. And this is how God describes where his relationship with his bride is and how far it has gone. This is how God describes rebellion, really. And, and we don't talk much about this side of God. We, we just don't. He hates he hates rebellion. He is a jealous Lord. He hates it when we cheat on him. Richard Niebuhr, he's a famous Christian leader here in America in the 1900s, maybe early to mid-1900s. And he looked at where Christianity was going and how it was just this feel-good Christianity. And he wrote just... In an observation, he says, seems as if American Christianity preaches or peddles the idea that we have a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. His comment was, we've taken all the truth out of this everything that's offensive, we strip it out so that we really don't have to undergo what it means to be offended when God calls us out and actually says no. That is a rebel heart. That's a rebellious spirit. You are cheating on me. And when I read through this, um, 
what struck me was how, how mad, how angry the wrath of God is, especially as you read the latter part of 23, the, the latter part of 16, where God says, I am, therefore I am going to judge you. What is amazing is that Christ takes that wrath. It's not only that we've cheated on him, but that he comes and, and he, he takes the full wrath of us cheating on him. And he's, he says, I'll bear that all. And where you and I start this walk and start this relationship with God is on our face before Christ. And anything less than on our face before Christ cheapens the cross. When I talk to people, do you understand? I you know, talk to people who talk about culture, you know, oh, I follow Christ or I'm a Christian and I start talking to them and I, and I get they're embarrassed of the cross. They are. They don't really want to talk about the cross because what the cross will require of them is to fall on their face before him and say, I know I've cheated on you. I know I've been cheating on you my whole life. I have, not somebody else. I'm the one that's wicked. I am the one that has sinned. I am the one that has played the whore. And people don't want to go that far. And Jake, I, I invite you to come up, Jake. God is saying today, the, the Hebrews 10 says this, how much worse punishment do you think it'll be after he's, Hebrews is all about Christ and, and what he's done for us. And he says, how much worse punishment do you think it'll be deserved by the one who tramples underfoot the son of God, who profanes the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, which is the Lord, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, right? And again, the Lord will judge his people. And so the author of Hebrews concludes with this statement, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And God is saying today, repent. If you have hidden sin, you need to confess it and you need to get it out. And, and you doing it alone is not gonna work. You need to humble yourself before God and confess to someone else. Repent. If you're hiding sin, repent. If you are struggling under anything that God would say is fear from, you have false idols, the cults, I don't know what you're into, to anger, to just a chip on their shoulder, you're just rebel against every authority, maybe you're bitter, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're into porn right now and you can't get out of it. Gossip. I, I don't know. Repent. And I'm just, I'm looking down because I, I don't need to look up. Only you and the Lord know. Hear the Lord this morning. Submit to the name. Fall before your king. Submit. Subjugate yourself. Turn from evil. Come to the cross.